0: Cast is more than rank. It is a state of mind that holds everyone captive. The dominant imprisoned in an illusion of their own entitlement. The subordinate trapped in the purgatory of someone else's definition of who they are and who they should be. The book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. The author, Isabel Wilkerson and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's, Let's get, get lit,
1: it. lit, I guess? <laughs> you got me scared. Am I reading a scary book? I guess I am. <laughs>
0: Hi, readers. This is Alexis. And this is Kari. You're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Kari, how's your week been? You know, it's been lovely. I
1: um, I did have a migraine, as you know, yesterday, and I was incapacitated. But um, other than that, I've been enjoying Aaliyah's, uh One in a Million <laughs> streaming on
0: Spotify. I forget how good that album is. Have you heard it? Uh, actually, no. I-, I did remember it was dropping, but I... You know, I, I've i been really disconnected from music unless I actually turn it on. I just yeah. I'm not listening because I'm listening and reading books. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've been running through a few books. You're ahead of schedule. Yeah, just um, I'm trying to keep up and then also try to plan for the November. Oh, yeah, yeah. Book.
1: No, I understand. And this album, a few of her albums I have on CDs, but I don't even know how to play CDs anymore. How would I play a CD?
0: Um, you have to have a CD player. I'm not invested in a DVD, uh, okay. DVD player. Do you have a DVD player? That's says... I do not. Oh, so how
1: do you play your? Um...
0: I have two drawers full of DVDs I cannot play. Do, you, do you, So you just hold them just for the fun of it?
1: I mean, maybe one day I'll buy a
0: DVD player. Who knows? But you don't want
1: to? I don't know. It's not on my list. But listen, this album, though, do you remember um, Hot Like Fire? Do you remember that yep. opening?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that.
1: Do you remember um, Tretch from Naughty by Nature?
0: <laughs> yeah, I was a fan of his. I'm a fan. I a
1: fan. Yeah, I was just liking the way he looked. I remember. So, did so nobody really? What liked. does that have
0: to do with anything? What All does that have to scream. do with anything? He
1: was Meek Mill before Meek Mill. It's a lot he, of screaming. He wasn't
0: a screamer. Um, <laughs> he wasn't. A yeah,
1: screamer. but just really well done at the time, being uh, very little. I remember thinking, but she
0: don't sang. sang." <laughs> And, and now so that's uh-huh. important I think that's important people don't sing the same that's why we have such yeah. variety in music we can't say it again huh, can we just have these people who have that voice and these people who have this voice and that be okay yeah like does everyone need to be Whitney it'd be yeah, great no <laughs> uh, but, but no, there's we only variety <laughs> if, if everybody is Whitney
1: and we don't want that do we yeah no and I feel like Really loving Janae Aiko and her has prepped me, ironically, for Aaliyah. And I'm I'm full on ready for her tone. I appreciate the layers in her tone now that I couldn't as like a
0: baby. So hmm. anyway, I want to move on. Okay, each week we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we're reading. And with this uh, week's theme, we're going to continue our focus on African-American accomplishments. Let's talk about catching flights and getting flued out. (laughs) let's do it who was the first black uh pilot Pilot. yeah I don't know tell me was it a man or a woman
1: it was a woman because we be doing them things oh and it was probably (laughs) something to
0: do with a war okay in reality is it a man or a woman I said a woman you okay so that's not correct it's a man of course it would be a man of course it would be a man right Oh, I gave you yeah. a chance, Olden times. right? Yes, exactly. Know, of course. I thought
1: the first pilot, black pilot, was a woman, and that she uh, flew in a in the war before a foreign government. And then when she came back to the states, she had to fly in like fairs and carnivals because we wouldn't let her fly professionally. And then the Chicago uh, Defender like published a piece on her, and her notoriety grew. None of
0: this is true. Okay, let's let's jump back. Okay, so the first black woman to gain an international permit to fly is Bessie Coleman. Yeah, yeah, Bessie Coleman, exactly. So she wasn't the first black pilot. No because remember <laughs> there were men flying. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you're right. That's what I'm that's all that's all I'm trying to say. There were men flying so she can't be the the first black person to you're fly right. because there were men <laughs> flying you're before right, her. Right. And in fact, her um her brother would tell her um stories about French women flyers um who had served in World War 1. So she's the first black woman to have an international permit to fly. And yes, Bessie Coleman, she's the one. Yep. She couldn't fly in America because they didn't want to train black, a black person. Right. And so she ended up going over to France. None of the black aviators wanted to train her to support her training. Because she was a woman. Mm hmm. As a woman. But but there was, you know, the Chicago Defender. We talked about that before in several of our books. Yeah. And the Chicago Defender, that <laughs> editor, an editor there, helped her, kind of financed her um, relocation to get training in France.
1: So the Chicago Defender, now no longer in print, has done a lot to help Black Americans as a whole, as far as rights and industry. Mm-hmm. A whole, whole lot. Yeah. Outlawed in some states um, because of its... Not even
0: pro-Black, but pro-human stance. That guy, that editor was Robert S. Abbott. Again, a Chicago Defender editor. And she received that license in 1921. 1921. And then she died on April 30th, um, 30th, 1926. She was 34 when she died.
1: Mm, Oh, so young.
0: Yeah, very young. And she she had just bought a plane and that plane was flown by her um her agent and something else. And the tr- plane had issues that she didn't um and people didn't want her to fly that because they knew the plane had issues and she flew anyway and and she died dying. in ca-
1: a plane crash?
0: Yeah, she died in a plane um. crash. Yeah. So how about the first black commercial pilot? Was it a man or a woman? Uh, that was a man. Okay. Do you know who it was? Since you so smart this morning, <laughs> you got all the answers.
1: Well, you know, I love black people doing things mm-hmm. unless they climb into the North Pole. That's silly.
0: Um, No, I don't. I will I don't tell know. you about the one that climbed to the South Pole. You want to know about that? I ain't going to tell you. We talking about getting <laughs> flued out. So, okay, God. go. Do you know Perry Young? Oh, no. Tell me about Perry. Yeah, Perry is um, an airplane and helicopter pilot. He was the first African-American person to be hired by commercial airlines with regularly scheduled passenger flights. Um, He got his private pilot license in 1939. And discrimination really kept him from being hired as a commercial pilot. He was hired by the U.S. after we entered world war world, world wait world war 2 <laughs> and he taught guess who he was hired to teach the Tuskegee airmen i knew it did you yeah okay. all right yeah he was hired to teach them anyway he was eventually hired by new york airways are you familiar with them that's no. an old airline And that was in 1956 as an airline and helicopter pilot. He ended up dying in November of 1998. Oh, not semi-recently. Yeah. And so there is a woman version of him, right? And her name is Jill Elaine Brown. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, When do you think they finally start hiring women to commercial pilot? um, Women of any skin color? Uh, No, black women. Okay, so when did they
1: first start hiring Black women as commercial pilots? I would say in the mid seventies.
0: Hmm. Okay. All right, but let's get into it. She was seventeen, and her entire family took lessons. Entire family, and she was the first in her family to receive a pilot's license. Her family then bought like an airplane and stuff. It's really cool. First African American woman in the US Navy as a trainee in 1974. She was hired by at the first African American owned and operated airlines as a flight attendant and then she what worked was the her first way first
1: Black American airline. What was the name of that?
0: Uh, and don't be was...
1: funny talking about Soul Plane or nothing. I really <laughs> want to know. <laughs> I got to I got to an answer
0: for you. It's called um I think it's called Wheeler something. Wheeler Airlines. Yeah, it's called Wheeler okay. Airlines. Mhm. Black-owned and operated and you know, she was doing her thing so she worked her way up, she got promoted and she became a pilot and she logged enough hours working for them that she could apply for a major airline. Do you know what airline hired her? Can you guess? Mm, TWA. <laughs> uh no. It's called um, (laughs) Texas International Airlines, and it was in 1978, so you were pretty close. She quit a year later because she felt like they only hired her because she was black. But guess who didn't hire Jill Elaine Brown? Guess. TWA. United Airlines. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. And she and sued. that's
1: why they steal trash
0: to this day. <laughs> to this day. <laughs> and she sued them twice and lost. And and it was about um, racial stuff. They She she was like, y'all not hiring me because y'all racist.
1: I want to get a shirt that says uppity on it. That's just reminding me. Okay, go ahead. <laughs>
0: Those are our flying people, yes. Those are the people that get us flued out, the early origins (laughs) of the flyings and stuff. So that's what I got, okay? Why don't we take a quick break before we get started in part two? Okay, love it. We're back. Kari, yes, are you ready to take this deep dive into the origins of our discontent with spoilers, right? Yeah. yeah. With spoilers.
1: Yeah, with spoilers, but um I do wanna repeat myself, when it comes to this book, nothing in it is new. Um, so if you want just a really great history lesson on how the caste system in the United States, um, the, the not how it began, but how it's structured, please listen to part one of this uh, coverage <laughs> of caste. And now let's dive into part two. All right, here we go. We ended on part five last week um, of our deep dive where we dissect the pillars of caste. And today we're going to start with part six, turning your brown eyes blue. So there was this like very forward thinking teacher in what, like a kindergarten to third grade classroom. I forget which grade she taught. <laughs> yeah. um, but after Martin Luther King died, she decided or was assassinated. She decided to carry on an experiment with her students. Do you remember the um, gist of this experience, Alexis?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The little, so what did she do? The little... Um, Brown child, brown-eyed children were going to be considered better than, and then the blue-eyed children were going to be considered less than. And she kind of flipped that between the um, two yeah. over a period of time.
1: Yeah. So she uh, conducted an experiment with her students where she told them all these children that blue-eyed, these blue eyed, She told them blue-eyed children are the best. They're the smartest. They're the fastest. They are the best children. And brown eyed people are on the lower scale. They're not as smart as blue eyed people. Um, They have handicaps. You know, they're just not as good as you. Um, She gave them this information and let them do with it what they would. Uh, As class began, uh, everyone started turning to the page that she instructed. But Lori, one of the children, was turning too slowly. And she ended up being the last person to reach her page. And a fellow student points out, she's a brown eyed. That's what he said. She's a brown eyed. Oh. It seemed like immediately with the information she gave them, the children started forming a hierarchy. Um, students started running in from recess crying. And she would say, why are you crying, little boy? <laughs> because I was called a name at recess. What were you called? Brown eyes. <laughs> you see something so innocent was weaponized all of a sudden. Later, she switched. Not only which innocent, color.
0: but mm-hmm. true. She had brown eyes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so later she switched which eye color was better and the outcome was the same. All of these brown eyed children started acting superior. I watched my students become what I told them they were, she said. If you do that with a whole group of people for a lifetime, you change them significantly. So that's the little experiment. I wonder what the parents thought. <laughs> the, the whole
0: time I read that, that's what I wonder. What did the yeah. parents feel about that? Because it's true, right? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. are a brown-eyed child and a blue-eyed child. It's the other stuff. The added, the made-up stuff. They smarter. They move faster. That's the stuff that makes the difference.
1: <laughs> so... um Mrs. Elliott was like really progressive for the time. And what a great lesson to learn at when your brain is still forming ideas and still realizing who you are. Moving on, deaths of despair. In the late 2000s and 2010s, less educated middle aged white American death rates were on the rise for the first time since 1950. And we touched on this last week. They were dying not by heart attack or genetic diseases, but by what, Alexis? Do you remember?
0: I think it was uh, drugs and suicide.
1: Yeah, they were succumbing to deaths of despair that include taking their own life, alcoholism and drug overdoses. These are preventable deaths. Half a million white Americans, more than the number of American soldiers that died during World War II, were succumbing to these uh, deaths of despair. And this was unique to the United States and coincided with a low caste um, member leading the country. So for the first time, someone from the bottom class was leading the country and people literally could not take it on the day of election or inauguration, people um, were literally taking their own lives. And um, yeah, they gave an example of one. So Wilkerson quotes a social economist and stating well, lower class working whites need the caste system more than upper class whites. They are the people likely to stress aggressively that no Negro can ever attain the status of even the lowest white. And then she goes on to describe this buffering system where you have upper caste members who are not earning as much money as other members of that caste, um, especially like lower class upper caste members. So lower class in that they're not making a lot of money, but they're still white in America. So they're still part of the upper class. Cast. Okay. So to preserve this um, standing, they really work to push down those lower caste members, because if they have nothing at all, these lower class upper caste people, at least they're still white. And so they hold on to that for like dear life with white knuckles. These deaths seem to be due to an end of an illusion, There was a time when one might lose everything, but not their whiteness, not their whiteness and everything that comes with it. But with a new person as um, president, they felt the certainty in their label, their white label, was no longer solid. Everything that came with that label wasn't guaranteed, and that shook people to their core. Without the collective madness that feeds on the inferiority of Blacks, What was the purpose of life? What was the value of life? Some saw none. (laughs) If the things I have believed are not true, then might I not be who I thought I was? Who are you if there's no one to be better than? And then that flows into a collective thinking that we hear a lot in the media. For example, how dare affirmative action be taken to give a fair shot, quote unquote, to those who society has placed in the lower caste? They are essentially cutting the line. And that's not fair. Some choose to ignore that the hand of government in the lives of white citizens has often been made invisible, leading to distortions as to how each group got to where they are. Oh, I so, like
0: the way you said mm-hmm. that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, invisible. It's invisible. Not talked about. They're like, they didn't contribute. I worked this hard on my own.
1: So, what's wrong with you? How come you don't have what I have? Yeah. And that um, invisible definition is actually from Wilkinson and I really thought she did a great job she explaining did. how it did. right
0: mm-hmm. how it
1: applies in everyday life yeah. so for example the New Deal reforms of the 1930s and the Wagner Act protecting laborers those excluded the vast majority of black workers at the urging of southern white politicians so they passed these quote unquote progressive laws to make a fair playing field for everyone purposely singling out black Americans so that they could not benefit. Then these uh, reformative acts helped a certain group of people. And usually it was those lower class upper caste members. FHA was created to make white citizens for example able to buy homes in white neighborhoods purposely excluding black Americans in a practice known as redlining and that's when they refuse to back a mortgage in a neighborhood with black homeowners so let's say I move into your um, neighborhood and the neighborhood was completely white before well now that I live there you can't get a mortgage there and so that's incentive for my neighbors to harass me maybe even take my life which had happened Mm -hmm. so which was happening I should say and it encouraged covenants and we talked about covenants um in warmth of other suns where the neighborhood gets together and says you cannot sell to any black people and people broke those covenants all the time because they like i'm leaving what do i care right right <laughs> and black people who had the money had to pay more because of these covenants so i'm making more money selling to blacks bye sorry see ya um and that's how some neighborhoods turned black in, a, in the span of a year or less. All of this though, all of these um, acts and associations that were formed to help people, all of this gave a leg up to the forefathers of white citizens today while shutting out Black Americans. This has led to an obvious wealth gap, which we see literally Easily, especially in a city like Chicago, Mm -hmm. however, unable or unwilling to see the inequities, upper caste members who profit and benefit from the oppression of the lower class do their best to portray the lower class as privileged beneficiaries of special preferences. (laughs) Look at you. (laughs) Why should the government help you? Mm -hmm. You know,
0: that invisible help that you received all those years ago to aid your family's advancement.
1: When aid was open to black Americans, white citizens began to complain of racism against whites. Mm. I feel oppressed. <laughs> How dare, you know, affirmative action comes to mind because especially when it comes to universities. Uh, so, autonomic, 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 yeah, autonomic responses and unconscious bias. Let's get into it. <clears throat> What's an autonomic response, Alexis.
0: Is that like an I I don't know the word you're saying, but I'm thinking it's the automatic response that you you're you elicit.
1: Yeah, because your unconscious bias is informing you constantly, Mm -hmm. then there are some reactions to things we all um, show without even realizing, it. you know? Yeah. It's like Mm -hmm. if a spider jumps in front of my face, I'm going to run. That's an autonomic response. I'm like, I know spiders can eat me whole. They carry deadly venom and they're ugly. I'm scared. None of this is true, but actually spiders are kind of
0: cute. Moving on. It, that's what? relative. You know, it really is relative. Yeah, okay. it is. You Some think they're cute. cute. I don't think they're cute. It just goes either way.
1: Okay, good point. So <laughs> um, now she talks about how all of this is affecting our daily lives. White felons applying for a job are more likely to be hired than Black Americans with no criminal record. um... In the life and death world of medicine, Blacks are granted fewer procedures and medicine. Procedures that are disproportionately given to Black Americans include the removal of stomach tissue because of ulcers, leg amputations, and the removal of testicles. Black Americans overall are given less pain medication for the same level of pain white patients are treated, for which white patients are treated. And this comes from perhaps a subconscious belief that blacks have a higher pain threshold, something that was really pushed throughout the years of slavery and Jim Crow. Um, I love how she shows how this type of thinking and this type of autonomic response hurts everyone. For example, just taking the medical industry over. Um, subscribing medication to white Americans while being stingy with care for black Americans leaves black patients to suffer needlessly. And it may have led to the over medication of white citizens now addicted to opioids. And speaking of drug addiction, the crack crisis was seen as a low caste or black problem. The solution chosen was to criminalize the addicted. And that swelled the rate of incarcerations. It split up families and it left the country ill-prepared for the opioid crisis we see today. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can um, burn, you know, if you live in an apartment building and I burn down my neighbor's apartment, that's going to affect the whole building and that fire will eventually spread to my unit. And that's how racism works. The rain don't just um, fall on one man's house Bob Marley. OK, that's <laughs> probably a misquote. Um, Part seven, (laughs) the problem with scapegoats and terrier dogs. First, she starts this um, section explaining the human impulse to blame an outsider group puts the entire population in peril. So if something happens to me and my family, I never want to look inside for the blame. I always want to look outside and monsterize people. But that hurts me. And it hurts my family Mm -hmm. because I'm refusing to see the truth. Mm -hmm.
0: On an autumn evening in October 1989, a suburban Boston couple expecting their first child that December were driving home from a childbirth class. The husband, 29-year-old Charles Stewart, was the reserved and ambitious store manager at a luxury furrier downtown. His wife, 30-year-old Carol Demedy Stewart, was a petite and gregarious attorney. They had bought a split-level house in the suburbs and had already decided that if that baby was a boy, they would name him Christopher. They were both children of the dominant class who had risen from modest blue-collar backgrounds they had just celebrated their fourth wedding anniversary. That evening, they were driving home through the neighborhood of Roxbury, which had been the landing place for waves of European immigrants and, after World War II, became mostly black, poor, and working class, ravaged by the war on drugs. The husband was behind the wheel of their Toyota and had taken a somewhat securitous route, At a traffic light in the Mission Hill section, shots were fired, hitting the wife in the head and the husband in the abdomen, both at close range. The husband was in better shape than the wife and he called police dispatch from his car phone. His wife died at the hospital of the massive wounds she sustained. Their baby was delivered in the wife's final hours, two months premature and named Christopher as his parents had wished. He lived for only 17 days. The night of the shooting, Charles Stewart told police that a black man with a raspy voice and wearing a jogging suit had forced his way into the car and had mugged and shot them. The tragedy triggered every deep-seated fear and horror in Boston and across the nation. The husband's desperate call to police dispatch aired repeatedly on television, as did video footage of paramedics pulling the mortally wounded wife from the Toyota. Outraged over an incomprehensible tragedy, the city went into action and began a massive manhunt. Mayor Raymond Flynn vowed to get the animals responsible and ordered every available detective diverted to the case. Officers combed Roxbury and stopped and strip-searched every man who fit the description, which meant almost any black man on the streets. Hundreds of them. The hunt for a suspect became the near-singular fixation for weeks. The dragnet gilded a 39-year-old unemployed black man with a criminal record whom Charles picked out in a police lineup people began calling for the death penalty. For months, officials had paid little notice to inconsistencies in the husband's behavior, distracted as they were by a storyline tailored to their expectations. The night of the shooting, Charles had driven around aimlessly for 13 minutes while talking to dispatch, rather than heading back to the hospital that the couple had just left claiming not to recognize any landmarks in the city he had lived in all his life. He never tried to comfort his wife, never called her name, according to Time Magazine. In the ambulance to the hospital, he only asked about the seriousness of his own wound and never about his wife's condition. Not long before, he had taken out several insurance policies on his young and healthy wife. After his release from the hospital, he collected on one of them and promptly bought a new car, a Nissan Maxima, and a $1,000 pair of women's diamond earrings. It turned out that he had been staying out late on Friday evenings and into the early morning hours to the consternation of his wife in the months before her death. He had been seen with a young blonde woman who worked summers at the Furrier and whom he had arranged to phone him at the hospital. He had told friends he did not want the baby, that it would disrupt his climb up the social ladder. Those contradictory details were not powerful enough to dislodge the fixed assumptions about the case, but there had been a third person involved on the night of the shooting. And as Christmas approached, that person began to crack. It was the husband's brother, Matthew. Charles had planned ahead for Matthew to meet the car at a rendezvous site the night of the shooting. Before the brother arrived, Charles had stopped the car and shot his wife in the head. After which Charles pointed the gun at himself, intending to shoot his foot, but misfiring into his torso instead. Charles told his brother to take and dispose of Carol's jewelry and purse and the gun that Charles had used to kill her. This would make it look like the robbery he would later report to the police. But afterward, The brother's conscience began to plague him, and he told other members of the family. He said he thought he was helping his brother in an insurance scam when he got the purse and gun, not in a murder plot. Word got back to Charles Stewart that his brother was planning to go to the police and testify against him in exchange for immunity. With the investigation closing in on him, the husband jumped to his death from the Tobin Bridge, into the Mystic River that January. His brother, Matthew, later pleaded guilty to conspiracy and possession of a firearm, among other charges, and served three years in prison. In the end, the husband alone was responsible for the death of his wife, but the caste system was his unwitting accomplice. Ooh, thank you for that
1: bone chilling uh, excerpt from the book. One thing she says after t- relaying that story, the caste system had given Charles Stout cover and endangered the life of Carol Demity Stewart as it had for white women in the Jim Crow South, where husbands and lovers knew that a black man could be blamed for anything that befell a white woman if the dominant caste chose to accuse him. Mm. I feel like in the second half of this book, she's really biting down and giving examples as to how the caste system hurts Everyone. Yeah, I think she, everyone
0: she definitely did that. The examples she applied were so fitting and they were they made it so clear how everyone is affected and not just limited to um, um, lower caste. The lower members. caste. Mm-hmm.
1: She also talks about a series of bombings where the first few victims were mm-hmm. black and Latina citizens. Um, the <laughs> authorities even implied that the black person had bombed himself. So this is the crazy thing. It was a package outside of his door. Someone rang the doorbell. He opened it. There was a package there. It blew up. Um, A similar instance happened with a Latina um, citizen in the area. And the police would not get involved seriously until the bomber injured two white citizens. That's when they hopped into action weeks after the first victim.
0: And, And they were able to find them. Pretty yeah. quickly after they really put in some work
1: and later issued an apology mm-hmm. because they saw exactly what had happened while, where they fell short. Do you remember when that happened? Mm-mm.
0: Oh, no, I don't have a okay. year. I no, no, not it. asking you just like as a do you remember the ex- in life? Oh, you remember? Had, yeah. No, I don't. OK, so
1: so um, when was it?
0: I want to say in the 2000s a lot of her experiences in this book are from are recent. very especially in the latter portion this part we're covering oh, now yeah. are very recent and I remember them I remember wow. when they were making the national news so
1: yeah Um. now for as long as I've known you except your real adult life you have had dogs in your house
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: Pibbles. yeah and one thing any animal, especially dog owner, especially pit bull owner knows is that dogs instantly form a hierarchy and that hierarchy is to be respected by everyone in the home, including the humans. Right.
0: Yeah. So unless they recognize the um, um, the, the leader of the pack.
1: Right. Right. If you haven't taken steps to be that alpha,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: they'll form it within themselves. Yeah. Um, go ahead.
0: No, no. I'm listening.
1: Uh, Isabel applied this to a terrier she got right in her house. Yeah. I don't know if she inherited this dog, but the dog was mean. <laughs> and she had to like get a, basically a dog psychiatrist to help her with it. And the, the um, expert was like, well, you need to be the alpha. So, for example, when the dog eats, leave your hand on the bowl and you might be scared that he's going to bite your hand off. Do it anyway. Let him know that this food comes from you. And that he needs to be grateful for the hand that feeds him. He won't bite the hand that feeds him. And then she got another little dog. And he started messing with the little dog. But that little dog put his foot down right away.
0: Bullying. And became the alpha. (laughs) Classic bullying. When you stand up for yourself, the bully backs down.
1: So we explained how this terrier she owned um, needed an alpha. And society is like that. Where a dog decides or I shouldn't say a dog, a human decides they're the top of the food chain. They're the alpha. They're the leader. And um, she gives the example of a man with his son and he's chastising the son for something. What did he say?
0: He (laughs) said, don't drink that juice. I think that's the one, right?
1: Something like that. And the boy starts to cry. This is at a restaurant. Well, a white woman steps up and addresses the child to disobey the father. She says, you drink your juice if you want to. Not even addressing the dad. That's but so disrespectful. Excuse me if you don't go sit down in
0: your seat. That's so disrespectful to me. That's, that, but I've seen it. Yes, it's so disrespectful. If you have adults present, don't talk to the child. Don't do that. Mm-hmm.
1: Don't. Yeah, I've been at conventions where um, adults like pat the head of a black child without addressing the parent. You are actually touching their child. Why are you doing that? And that's fine. If you want, if you're so drawn to this child, I mean, maybe they have like the cutest, juiciest cheeks and you just feel like you have to touch this child. Address the parent, address the parent, (laughs) address the parent holding the child. Mm -hmm. But this type of subconscious um, decision-making Goes on without our knowledge because we've slipped into this caste system and things that we would some people would automatically do to a lower caste member. They would never think of doing to a higher one. Mm hmm. Um, so dominant cast members are now seen across social media policing lower cast members. Uh, Karens, you know, maybe it's a family having a picnic at the park and they get the police called on them. Uh, maybe it's the bird watcher in New York. That was especially creepy because the Karen who called the police and said, "You know, I'm gonna say a black man was assaulting me." They had the last name, so you know it's some sad history there. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Yeah, I remember. I think she got her job back too and her dog. That video was hard to watch because that dog was on the edge of life. Mm. Um, So, yeah. Remember the black student at Yale whose dorm called the police because she was sleeping in the shared study space? Mm -hmm. Do you remember sleeping all over Marquette?
0: In In the vibe, Larry, just in the... Man, five, ten
1: minutes just Just, catching a
0: a wink. Yes, please Mm -hmm. let me close my eyes right here and I will wake up and finish (laughs) this report at 2 In the morning, okay? (laughs) Because
1: all my words are blended together right now. (laughs) This is normal university life. Mm -hmm. However, the police showed up, asked for the black student's ID, even after she opened her door with her own key. So... Yeah, and then Isabel gives her own examples, which are hard to hear. Hard for example, to
0: hear. Ugh, I'm so <laughs> she
1: traveled a lot for the New York Times and as a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, duh. Well, one time she showed up at the airport without luggage because that was her the nature of her job. Sometimes she would fly in and fly out. Um, the DEA held her up in front of everyone on the bus she was boarding to pick up her rental car, and this is before the days of Twitter. They didn't believe she was a reporter. She began taking notes on them with a pen and paper. So she's nervous now. Everyone's looking at her on the bus. They've boarded the bus with her. She doesn't know what to do again before Twitter. So she gets out her pen and paper and starts noting what they look like. She starts noting. She, it's like she calls it emergency journalism. It was the only thing she could do to take control of herself in that situation. And they looked away. They saw her taking notes and they didn't want to be documented. Isn't that something? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. And we see that today. Oh, no, don't record me. I'm treating you like trash, but don't let the world know. Um, And then one thing Isabel says is when she. When that situation ended and she picked up her car, I think it was in Chicago, a city she had, whatever city it was, she'd been there a million times. Mm-hmm. She collected her rental car and made circles around the parking lot,
0: confused. She was so She rattled. couldn't remember
1: how to get on the highway, a highway she had been on a million times. She got so confused and she realized in that moment how serious the, DE, the situation the DA created was for her. Um, her mind, she says, was hijacked. And she, she only then realized how it affected her. Ah, oh, Isabel. Um, so then she gives another example. Black soldiers nominated for awards by French soldiers during World War II. This was really crazy because during a time when you are fighting, <laughs> Germany and all of its allies, um, French soldiers had to be educated in the American caste system because they were showing too much respect to black soldiers. So they had this like seminar which taught them how to treat black people from America and they readily adapted it, except the black soldiers were exceptional. Some dying in the line of duty, just like them. So they nominated um, two men specifically for awards. Those were awards were never given to the men by the U S government, even posthumously um, because the American system at the time was high on eugenics as was Nazi Germany. Mm. Eugenics was the thing. We are better than you deemed by God. This is the way it is. You get nothing and everything you're you're doing for your country is what you're supposed to do. Mm. The greatest backlash from the dominant caste comes not because of crime by a lower caste member, though, but when a member of the lowest caste seems to be better or even more noble than even one of the higher caste members. Um, so, doing too good, acting uppity, um, excelling in any category seems to shake these cast these upper caste members more than anything because your failure is expected. So, when you don't fail, it's like You know, am I wrong about black people? I can't be right. (laughs) (laughs) And now I don't know who I am and I'm really disturbed.
0: Yeah, that's too bad.
1: Um, There's an example here of a of people's grocery store, which was a black owned grocery store in the 1890s. Wow. What it must have taken for that family to open their own grocery store, serving their own people. Well, that grocery store was um, attacked by a white mob, including the deputy. Um, The black store owners defended themselves with guns. They were hung, I want to say. And that store was bought for pennies by a white competitor. Again, that's people's grocery. Yeah. In the 1890s. Yeah. The fear of lower caste success. Look at them with their own grocery store. Ooh. Hurt everyone. Cannot. You reiterate that enough. Uh, There's a stigma around vaccinations at a time when smallpox was spreading throughout the country. But the idea for a solution came from a slave, a slave who told the plantation owner, this is what we did back home. We would take a liquid from the infected person, inject it into ourselves, and that would help us not get whatever they got. When the... A landowner who was a doctor told the masses about this. They were disgusted. Where'd you, this is a great idea. Where'd it come from? (laughs) A slave. Disgusting. I'll never do it. And because of that, that. we're not doing that. Mm -mm. (laughs) And because of that, 14% of Boston's population died. Two current examples 59% of the poor people depicted in the news are black, although most poor are white, of course, because most people in this country are white in certain areas. Yeah. And only one in five black families can be considered actually quote unquote poor. The range of black teens giving birth. Another example has plummeted. However, this is not reported as highly as the overall high teen uh, birth rate was. This gives a dominant caste a false sense of superiority. Uh. Moving on. Deep South, A Social Anthropological Study of Caste and Class. Um, This is a book published by Allison Davis, who's a man, Elizabeth Stubbs Davis, who's a woman, they're married, they're black, they're anthropologists, and their partners, um, Burleigh and Mary Gardner, who are white. So you have a black couple and a white couple, both like social scientists. The leader of this investigation or this study was the black husband. They went through hurdles to document how the caste system worked in the South um, they had to like pretend to fit into the caste system. So they're friends, they're colleagues. But once they got to the black South, they had to pick up certain accents. The white um, colleagues could not speak to the black colleagues, especially in public. Uh, The black husband and the white husband who were in this investigation, remember the black husband is in charge of it. Um, They had to meet like in a car (laughs) to like uh, compare notes And to make an outline. Well, those car trips were surveilled by the local authorities. Um, It was received when the once the book was um, finally published, it was received in the light of two other studies published with similar themes by white authors, by white anthropologists who didn't even bother and literally could not infiltrate. Black Americans in the South to learn their side. So this book brought both sides. It showed how the caste system affected and hurt both sides of one community, of one section of the nation. But that book was not praised as much as the two by white authors that came out before it. And again, that book is Deep South, a social anthropological study of caste and class. Um, And then she talks about sport teams who lost profit and legends that they'd still be benefiting from today by blocking out players for the sake of caste order. Uh, Maybe the Cubs could have won a World Series if they had allowed (laughs) blacks to play sooner than they did. But whatever. Moving on, part eight, the consequences. Yes, we're getting even deeper into how this caste system affects us today.
0: Consequences and repercussions. Yeah. The film footage, black and white, rough against the wall onto which it is projected, unfolds in a continuing loop in a cave of a viewing room at a Berlin museum. It shoves, heaves, spits you back in time to Saturday, July 6th, 1940, at precisely 3 p.m. There is no commentary explaining the footage. You are forced to absorb the horror of it and all of its banal pageantry on your own. Hitler is returning to Berlin after the Germans have seized Paris in the Battle of France. The camera captures his arrival at Anhalter Station and follows the flower-strewn strasses along the parade route to the Reich Chancellery. Hitler's motorcade winds past people who are not just hurling confetti, but are so tightly packed together that they themselves look like mounds of confetti thrown by the wind. Soldiers have to hold back the smiling, crying women as would happen at Beatles concerts a generation from this moment. I thought to myself, Did the German people know the carnage they were celebrating? Yes. It turns out clips of bombing raids were shown during newsreels before the feature film at the cinema. They knew that the French had been violently defeated. It was two years past Kristallnacht. They knew that Jewish friends and neighbors had been rounded up, publicly humiliated, taken away, never seen again and the people in the crowd were smiling and happy. Everything that happened to the Jews of Europe, to African-Americans during the lynching terrors of Jim Crow, to Native Americans as their land was plundered and their numbers decimated, to Dalits considered so low that their very shadow polluted those deemed above them, happened because a big enough majority had been persuaded and had been open to being persuaded centuries ago, or in the recent past, that these groups were ordained by God as beneath them, subhuman, deserving of their fate. Those gathered on that day in Berlin were neither good nor bad. They were human, insecure, and susceptible to the propaganda that gave them an identity to believe in, to feel chosen and important. What would any of us have done had we been in their places? How many people actually go up against so great a tide of seeming inevitability? How many can see the evil for what it is as it is occurring? Who has the courage to stand up to the multitudes in the face of a charismatic demigod who makes you feel better about yourself, part of something bigger than yourself, that you have been primed to believe. Every last one of us would now say to ourselves, I would never have attended such an event. I would never have attended a lynching. I would never have stood by, much less cheered, as a fellow human was dismembered and then set afire here in America. And yet, tens of thousands of everyday humans did just that. In the lifetime of the oldest among us in Germany, in India, in the American South. This level of cold hearted disconnection did not happen overnight. It built up over generations of insecurities and resentments. Some of the witnesses and participants who hiled Hitler and laughed at humans being tortured in the Jim Crow South are still alive cradling grandchildren in their bosom. The camera in Berlin panned the crowd and fixed its lens on the children. A little girl with a blonde page boy and a barrette in her hair hiling Hitler hoisted on her parents' shoulders. She would be about 80 now and this could be one of the earliest memories she carries inside her as a human being. Germany bears witness. To an uncomfortable truth that evil is not one person, but can be easily activated in more people than we would like to believe when the right conditions congeal. It is easy to say, if we could just root out the despots before they take power or intercept their rise, if we could just wait until the bigots die away. It is much harder to look into the darkness in the hearts of ordinary people with unquiet minds, needing someone to feel better than, whose cheers and votes allow despots anywhere in the world to rise to power in the first place. It is harder to focus on the danger of common will, the weaknesses of the human immune system, the ease with which the toxins can affect succeeding generations. Because it means the enemy, the threat, is not one man. It is us, all of us. Lurking in humanity itself. That's crazy, isn't it? That's crazy. Yes, and some of the witnesses who saluted Hitler and
1: laughed at lynchings are still alive today, cradling grandchildren to their bos- bosom. Oh my God. Evil is not one person, but can be easily activated in most people, mm-hmm. more people than we would like to believe. Mm-hmm. The obligation of forgiveness... Who do you think this is often placed on, Alexis? The lower caste member. Indeed. At the trial of Amber Geyer. Remember her? Yes. She's the one who shot Botham John in his own home. That's the police officer who walked into his house and killed him. And they said, oh, no, I'm scared. hmm Well, the judge hugged her. And they sang spirituals. No, I don't know.
0: But it was odd. She gave him a in 2018, Bible. She gave her a Bible.
1: She gave her a Bible. Well, that's good. She need that. In 2018, a woman in Brooklyn called the police on a nine-year-old baby who she said sexually assaulted her. Do you remember this? Yes,
0: I remember. It was insane.
1: It was. The boy started crying. His mother tried to console him. Imagine being the mom in that situation. You're calling the chi- the police on my child. Why are you doing this? My black child assaulted you? The white lady said, "Mm mm-hmm. he touched my butt and I'm not going to allow this. The boy's like, I didn't do nothing to you. Why are you attacking me? What saved him was the store camera, which showed him walking past her, not even knowing she there. And his backpack slightly brushed against her without his notice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In a uh, news report, he's asked, do you forgive the woman? And his reply, iconic. I don't forgive her and she needs help. (laughs) Not a lie told. Not any lies told. He responded with the outrage of a child not yet conditioned to know his place
0: in the cast. Isn't that something? Yeah. He, he, help. If he was older, he should have said, yeah, I forgive her. I forgive yeah, her. Yeah, I definitely, you know, we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I don't forgive her and she needs help. He should have said, I'm
1: a child, people. You- this is dumb. And you endanger my life
0: because you need help. She needs help. Man, kids out of the mouth of babes. Ooh. he says she need help. Shoot. Sick of her. Health care. <laughs> health care. Black folks
1: are dying, y'all, from stress. Mm. Gave the example of an African man who moved to this country and his health is... um." On the level of his father, who is twice his age, he's stressed out. He didn't think black people had any merit to their complaints until he became black when he moved here. Mm -hmm. Affluent blacks, it comes, uh, it's it's found die younger than middle aged and low class black Americans. That's because they're constantly fighting this caste system. White folks are dying, too, guys, from existential fears. Who am I? Why am I here if black people aren't on the bottom? It's literally killing people. We are also the least caring nation when it comes to our own citizens. In societies without a caste system, healthcare is more of a benevolent industry. For example, they don't see caring for the majority via free or universal healthcare, or whatever you want to call it, as anything more than caring for themselves. Because they'll need that health care eventually. I too need to have
0: care for myself. Yes. <laughs> right? So let's just care for ourselves. Let's just care. Nope. Yes. <laughs> nope. However,
1: health care in this country is expensive and dying within the healthcare care expense um, system is expensive. Mm. Leaving all castes to suffer burden. She gave the example of a president that sold his Pulitzer Prize because he needed it to pay for his health care. No one is immune. Is the point. Healthcare is expensive. We have the highest number of private gun owners. The largest number of incarcerated citizens. If all the incarcerated citizens got together, they could form a city that would total the fifth largest city in America. Whew. Compared to the top wealthy nations, American pregnant women are more likely to die giving birth. Also, the overall life expectancy is lower for the entire population compared to other industrialized nations. Speaking of which, American students score near the bottom in industrialized nations in math and reading, especially. No one knows how to read. No one knows the difference between there, there and there. I don't get it. But
0: that's where we are. <laughs> Somebody always judging you, right? But- grammatical (laughs) error I'm
1: the one (laughs) Um, but this is all an effect of caste blood and politics our last section after the civil war northerners felt a greater kinship with the former confederates who had betrayed the union than they did with the people whose free labor built the wealth of the nation and over whose freedom the war had been fought in the first place Let that sink in. Reformists left the South, leaving white Southerners to form Jim Crow and all the violence and death that came with it. Confederate generals who tore apart families beat humans, including women, until they were unconscious and committed many more unspeakable acts, had streets, schools, cities named after them. Holidays and statues were established in the honor of these men. And then there's a section at the end I would like to share with you friends. She writes. In Germany, displaying the swastika is a crime punishable by up to three years in prison. In the United States, the rebel flag is incorporated into the official state flag of Mississippi. It can be seen on the backs of pickup trucks north and south, fluttering along highways in Georgia and the other former Confederate states. A Confederate flag the size of a bedsheet flapped in the wind off an interstate in Virginia around the time of the Charlottesville rally. In Germany, there is no death penalty. We can't be trusted to kill people after what happened in World War II, a German woman once told me. In America, the states that recorded the highest number of lynchings, among them the former Confederate states of America, all currently have the death penalty. In Germany, few people will proudly admit to having been related to Nazis or will openly defend the Nazi cause, not even members of Germany's right-wing Alternative for Germany party, wrote Neiman, would suggest glorifying the party of the past. The Germans who may privately mourn for members lost, family members lost at the front, Neiman wrote, know that their loved ones cannot be publicly honored without honoring the cause for which they died. In America, at civil war reenactments throughout the country, more people typically sign up to fight on the side of the Confederates than for the Union, leaving the Union side sometimes struggling to find enough modern-day conscripts to stage a reenactment. Mm -hmm. In Germany, some of the Nazis who did not kill themselves were tracked down and forced to stand trial. Many were hanged at the hands of the Allies for their crimes against humanity. The people who kidnapped and held hostage millions of people during slavery, condemning them to slow death, were not called to account and did not stand trial. In Germany, restitution has rightly been paid and continues to be paid to survivors of the Holocaust. In America, it was the slaveholders who got restitution, not the people whose lives and wages were stolen from them for 12 generations those who instilled terror on the lowest caste over the following century after the formal end of slavery, those who tortured and killed humans before thousands of onlookers, or who aided and abetted those lynchings and who looked the other way, well into the 20th century, not only went free, but rose to become leading figures, Southern governors, senators,
0: sheriffs, businessmen, mayors. It was celebrated. Celebrated honored.
1: And that is cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh anything you'd like to add Alexis?
0: There was a section um there was a in that section that you read they talked about how the um children like let's say today's children how they're made to go on these tours to learn about um so in Germany, students have to learn the history, yeah. all the ugly history of
1: what went on during the Holocaust and during World War Two
0: and the time leading up to it. And so um, it, it talked about the comments that the children made. They're like, we didn't we didn't do this. It's not our fault. But we understand why we have to learn about it. I think that's kind of what that's ultimately what they said. And I thought it was so valuable.
1: Yeah, they were asked if they thought these this education was necessary. And they said, yeah, because we have to make sure this never happens again. So we have to know what happened, even though we didn't cause it. We are like the guardians to make sure it doesn't happen again. Mm
0: -hmm. So they were able to appreciate why an education about such um, atrocities could benefit them.
1: And uh, yeah, so let's take a break and we'll move on into our final verdict. How does that sound? Great. Okay. All right. And we're back. So, Alexis, what did you think of Cast by Isabel
0: Wilkerson? And would you recommend this book? I hate this book. And And I love this book. But I hate this book because it's so much, um, so many stories in there, like real life accounts that can be looked up and that are so painful, modern day and in the past. They are very painful and very heavy on the soul. And I didn't like that. But it's very. Okay. Is it the book you hate or the facts? I hate the facts. Yeah. I hate the facts. I, I hate yeah. the facts. Can I repeat that? Put that on a loop. <laughs> it hurts to hear these accounts.
1: Physically hurts. Yes,
0: it physically hurts. It's draining to hear these accounts. I have to close the book and put it aside. Yes, it's truth, But it hurts. It's hard to... Um, just constantly take that in. And this is what is this like 600 some odd pages. And as they get more modern and it just cuts differently because like I'm present for all these things. And these are also things that can happen to me. I can tell my own stories about such things. So that Mm -hmm. was hard to listen to, to read on page. Um, so what I recommend it, if you could take history, if you could take facts, if you want to know um, the story about caste, it's beneficial to you. It, it, I did learn quite a bit because as I stated early on, I didn't know, I didn't understand caste, didn't really know what it meant and how it applied.
1: Not in the context of America, especially. Right.
0: right? Exactly. So. yeah, Same. So to hear it was an explanation that I needed. I feel like I need it because it, it, um, it, it allows me to see things differently. But um, I just, I, I don't know. It, is it for a project? Go ahead. I mean, this is necessary information. It is necessary to know because this um, understanding of cast was very enlightening to me. So I do and I don't.
1: <laughs> no, you got to pick one. That's the show. But I get what you're saying, actually. This just so. really
0: is, um, take it in bites. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, the information is beneficial. So on that note, I'll re- recommend it. But be prepared. But I'll give you the warning to be prepared. Spread it out. Um, do some self-love um, things in between. Yeah, take a
1: spot day yeah. If you know you're going to read this book. Maybe also schedule a massage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a trip. No, I don't take this book with you on a trip though. <laughs> You're gonna be looking at everyone crazy. Yeah. So
0: definitely <laughs> I would recommend it because the information is so invaluable. I learned so much. I learned so much. But in search of personal care in that, because it's it's a very heavy book. That's what I'll do. Yes, but with a warning. How about okay. you, Kari? Would you recommend it?
1: So I will say uh, one thing we talked about last week is how um, anger and outrage about history Mm -hmm. says more about the person learning the history than it does about the history itself, because history does not change. Um, I will compare this book to vegetables. I think it is important for us to eat our vegetables, even if we're not, you know, maybe we want to eat ice cream all day and just ignore what our body needs, Uh, We still need to feed it. We need these reminders of fact. Facts are like vegetables um, in that way and that we need to take them in. And I would say that everyone living within this caste system in any layer should read this book. I found no I found very little bias in it. Um, It is complete with sources I thought it was very well-researched, as was her way with Warmth of Other Suns. But Warmth of Other Suns told three narratives. It told you about three individuals, and it talked about the highs and lows of their lives. That book felt more like story time. It coddled you. This book is not coddling you. No. It is telling you the facts in a very detailed way. As an instructor would. This is a university course. Mm-hmm. This is um, American cast one oh one. And it's a class we all should have taken and never did. Required, no, we were never offered required it. It wasn't a course. In fact. This is a prerequisite to being a citizen in America. Mm-hmm. It is. You should know the system that you're living in. Just like you have to know the laws that you live under. Then I think you should know the social laws that you're living under, whether or not you recognize them. These are the laws you are um, bending for. Um, So I highly recommend this book. And uh, I think you should definitely not uh, take a bite here, take a bite there. Read it all so you can be done. (laughs) I could not imagine reading this book over the period of one month. I needed two weeks and that's it. I needed to read these stories. I needed to read these accounts and also the dissection of them quickly. And I'll be thinking about this book for years. Mm -hmm. I hope to never forget it. And if I forget it, I need to go back and reread it again. It reminds me of Malcolm X in that way, the autobiography, and that he is, um, that is, of course, personal. So it's biased and that it's his personal thoughts and ideas. Um, But it's a lot of history in it, too. And it's indisputable. So you want to ignore it? You can, but it won't change. I think you live better and more informed in the society when you know why society is the way it is on a a superficial level. Because we can have ideas about the cause of evil um, that we know are true, but then what's the effect of that as it pertains to living in America? That's how I feel like this book uh, helped me. It helped me really see Oh, yeah, because when a black person in power does something hurtful to a, lower, a fellow black person, that's not racism. What is that? And I didn't have a word for it before. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that is casteism. That is someone trying to show that they're worthy of being in this upper cla- caste. And um, it doesn't matter what class you're in, how much you make, you're born into these castes. Um, and that's not a choice you make. So you need to know what to do with that. <laughs> you need to know what to do with that. And then if you find yourself subconsciously thinking something about a whole group of people, check yourself. Why do you think that? Is it because of this system you've been conditioned in? So really great job, Wilkerson. I highly recommend this book. I loved it. And it will stay on my shelf forever. Sometimes I'm thinking I'm going to do a um, a large giveaway of, of these books we've been collecting. But this is a book I'll keep because this is like a history book. It's a history book. <laughs> it's a his- I, It's um...
0: definitely a history book. It's a little smaller than um, Warmth of Other Suns. A little shorter, right?
1: But it feels longer. Yes. It feels heavier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shorter than Warmth of yeah. Other
0: Suns. It's shorter.
1: But Warmth of Other Suns, really, it feels like... You know, the grandma you love putting you in her bosom and telling you her story. Mm -hmm. And who don't love that? And she tells you, and then baby, your cousin was lynched and it was gross and it was disgusting. And children participated and they gathered to watch your cousin be burned alive and to cut off pieces of his body and to drag him through the street until his, um, you know, corpse was beheaded. They did this. Children took home. Um fingers of his they made postcards this is disgusting and terrifying but look at us look at me look I survived this and you'll survive anything that comes your way you you have the capacity to do that and so it's it's a lot more hopeful this book isn't necessarily hopeful Nope. because it's about right now it's not necessarily about the future it's about right now Oh, so you hurt my feelings. Yeah. This
0: book hurt my feelings. It did. It really hurt my feelings.
1: So that's Cass. Mm. Yay. Thank you.
0: I'm so glad we finished with that book. <laughs> I am. Um, thank you for sharing your um thoughts and making the um the deep dive very concise. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. No very problem. Much. Um <laughs> What are we reading next week, Kari?
1: We are taking a week off, but we will not leave you without an episode. We're getting relit with Dapper Dan made in Harlem by Day O' Day.
0: Yes, yes. One of my favorites. Yeah, that's a doozy. Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the Woo. cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us, because we love you too. We love you too. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit litsocietypod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. Until next time, read read something. something.